like I need a Grammy. She lays the flow with her designer panties. Yeah, we eatin' panties, check the pantry from the sound wave to the rebel lines from the tattered bitches to expensive dishes. Now we meetin' ends with these new beginnings. Yet the sign a major for the bankroll, but thank the Lord that it dies in penitentiary. Nice guy, but my inside is empty. Mighty flashy with a bird's eye. Scribble chains to get my pockets lined till I get arthritis. Switch my heart is icy, walking past the bouncer like I knew somebody. Queen is hella cloudy, and the poison ivy with from like a stronger when it comes. Welcome, everyone. Come in, sit down, but don't get too comfortable because we are, of course, about to spit some truth about COVID-19. But first, let's take a walk down memory lane. On this Friday night, 35 million people now under lockdown. China's unprecedented quarantine as it tries to contain the coronavirus. Austria joins the club no one wants to be a member of. Countries which have cases of the new coronavirus. A couple has been quarantined in a hospital in Innsbruck. The town is a skiing destination for many Europeans and with schools on half-term holiday, tourism is complicating the struggle to contain the virus. And it's Europe's five most populated countries that have been the hardest hit. Anxiety mounts over the spread of COVID-19. From a major market meltdown to new travel bans. The risk of a global pandemic is very much upon us. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. NBC News has just confirmed two new cases in Washington state, adding to new cases also reported today in Illinois and Rhode Island. New York has become the epicenter of the outbreak in the U.S. We are literally scouring the globe looking for medical supplies. The U.S. has now recorded more than a million COVID-19 cases. Cases. Wow, that was literally sickening. I honestly can't even remember what we used to talk about before the Rona. It seems like no matter what kind of news you follow, be it politics, sports, science, technology, international news, everything is about the coronavirus. But there's a lot of misinformation, too. And at least in the United States, some of it is coming from our elected leaders. Now, the virus that we're talking about having to do, you know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. People die from the flu. And it is a little bit different, but in some ways it's easier and in some ways it's a little bit tougher. Uh, But uh, we have it so well under control. I mean, view this the same as the flu. When somebody sneezes, I mean, I try and bail out as much as possible. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. We're ordering a lot of different uh, elements of medical. You take a, a solid flu vaccine, you don't think that would have an impact or much of an impact on corona? Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. And this is their new hoax. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way, right? And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? I am not a doctor, but I do know that injecting or otherwise trying to put disinfectant or UV light into your body is an extremely bad idea. Before we went into lockdown, I had been researching for an episode about the death of expertise. In other words, the undermining of the authority of experts that ran rampant in the 2016 election and has continued since then. Remember Post-Truth? 
that idea that facts and knowledge are relative or whatever, that's a great example of the death of expertise. And this phenomenon can be extremely problematic during a global pandemic. Because if we don't turn to scientists and doctors and researchers during this crisis, we are doomed. But on the flip side, we also need to understand that sometimes experts have to say, I don't know, and we can't immediately discredit them for it. Misinformation gets me especially pressed because more often than not, it is targeted toward the disadvantaged, low-income people, the working class, and of course, black and brown people. And during a global pandemic, misinformation is contagious. We will not submit to communism or socialism. Keeping sick people quarantined is democracy. Keeping healthy people quarantined is tyranny. Who has the right to tell me I can't get a haircut? I can't go here. I can't go there. It's unwillingly that we're taking unemployment. We want to go back to work. Let the people that are willing to and not scared to, let those people go to work and suck it up for everybody that may or may not be able to do so. I truly believe that restrictions should have been put on the people that are sick. I truly believe that there are some people that are at a higher risk than others. Us people that are at a lower risk, I feel like we should have continued out our lives and continued working. Keep us away from churches and synagogues. They want to make sure we don't go back to work. They don't get it. The American spirit is too strong and Americans are not going to take it. Those sound bites you just heard are protesters and one very loud Janine Pirro. They want us to end the lockdowns, reopen the economy. They want their lives back. Understandably, they want to work and they want to earn an income again. But the experts are saying reopening too soon is dangerous because there might be a second surge of the virus, a more deadly surge, and that would lead to more lockdowns. But the protesters aren't hearing that. They're hearing... COVID kills fewer people than the seasonal flu. Social distancing is actually hindering us from developing herd immunity. The economic impact is worse than the disease itself. When you see somebody post something... Mm-hmm. that you know isn't correct, you should challenge the post. You should mm-hmm. say, well, no, this isn't right. This person mm-hmm. is saying this, but this is not this is not true, right? Mm-hmm. That's Dr. Karen Klingman, an infectious disease expert at NIH. You know what? I'm going to let her do her own intro. Uh, my name's Karen Klingman. I work right now at the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is part of NIH. I'm an infectious disease doctor. I've been at NIH for almost 20 years, working at the Division of AIDS. And before that, I was in academic medicine for about 10 years at the University of Buffalo, doing infectious diseases and HIV care and um, throwing test tubes about in the laboratory, as I say. Because there's so much media coverage of COVID-19, I had friends and family and online acquaintances send me questions to ask Dr. Klingman. These are questions that they feel aren't being covered by the media or just things that they've researched for themselves and don't fully understand. So the first thing I have to say, though, before I start answering questions is that these are my views, not the views of, you know, NIH or the federal government. So just be aware. First off, let's hear what Dr. Klingman thinks isn't getting enough media attention. Well, I think as an infectious disease doctor, my frustration with this whole pandemic 
is that we've known since 1918 that something like this could happen. And there's been many statements by powerful people in government over the last hundred years saying we need to get ready. And then we had several dress rehearsals, the anthrax scare, MERS, SARS, H1N1, influenza, and we never picked up the thought that we really seriously needed to get ready for it. So here we are. We have the pathogen that everybody was worried about, and we're not ready for it. There have been tons of scientists, virologists, doctors, nurses, even Bill Gates warned us of a viral flu pandemic years and years and years ago. And while we know we weren't prepared, my question is, what should we have done differently? I think that requires some thought when we get out of this more acute phase that we really need to take this issue seriously because it will happen again. Hopefully not like this, but it will happen again. She said it will happen again ominously twice in the same sentence, and that really freaked me out. So I wanted to understand why. What is it exactly about human behavior that makes us so susceptible to these kinds of pandemics? Because the human population is encroaching across environments all over the world because of, you know, overcrowding and resource use needs. And so we're going to meet viruses and bacteria that we've never met before. And one of them will be like this one. So potentially, maybe even within my lifetime, we may face a similar new virus like this one. And it may pose another threat to the way society functions. But it's real hard to look toward the next pandemic right now. It's hard for me to even look toward next week. I mean, the acute phase that we're in with the fear and and the the awfulness of watching the numbers go up, I guess we can't talk about that too much. And the fear is quite justified. Right. Um, but um, I would hope we get to a place where we can have a constructive discussion and actually create plans and activities that take us to a better place for the next time. I mean, that seems to be kind of a global issue, right? Right. At least for the last 20 years, we've been acutely aware that this issue was going to happen. She's referring specifically to the 2001 anthrax scare. Some of y'all in my generation might remember it. It was days after 9-11, and someone mailed letters laced with the anthrax bacterium to congressional members and media offices. There were five deaths and 17 infections. And while thankfully it didn't become a pandemic of COVID proportions, it did create a terrifying ripple effect through the American public. This took place in the early years of the George W. Bush administration, and some argue that the anthrax attack was the final straw leading to the passage of the Patriot Act. I think it's kind of interesting to look back at the political ramifications of anthrax. There are plenty of political theorists who argue that it was anthrax, not 9-11, that really helped Bush push the Iraq war. But the doc gave credit where it's due. He did start, I mean, the national stockpile that uh, we have is because of his doings. He started to think in those terms, but more didn't happen after that, right? Right. I guess, speaking of the administration, the president and a lot of his surrogates keep talking about this drug called hydroxychloroquine. 
Yeah. What is that exactly? Well, it's a very old anti-malarial drug. So it's used to treat malaria or to prevent malaria. It has additional properties and it's also used as an anti-inflammatory drug and they use it to treat rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. There are probably better drugs to treat both those diseases now, but it's still used. So because of its anti-inflammatory properties, and it also has at least theoretically perhaps some direct antiviral effects, but I'm not certain if people really believe that totally, but at least on paper, (laughs) it could. (laughs) But anyway, I think most people are interested in it because of the anti-inflammatory effects. And, you know, there were some data from MERS, maybe sort of could have helped. Okay. Um, (laughs) This doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like convincing evidence though, right? No, there's, so there's been several now really poorly done trials. Okay. Um, (laughs) And the one that gets a lot of press is the one from France that came out a couple weeks ago that claimed that there was a efficacious response. But when you read that paper, there were some definite problems with the way they analyzed the data. It wasn't quite kosher in most people's minds. Mm -hmm. So people really question their interpretation of the results. So there are now many well-controlled studies going on around the world trying to do the study that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, you know, you know, studies take a long time to happen. So it might take several months to get an answer that people will agree is the answer. Ultimately, Dr. Klingman isn't optimistic about the merits of hydroxychloroquine. I will be surprised if it shows anything useful, but we get surprised all the time in medicine and science. The two things that they're sort of trying to develop right now are treatment and or a vaccine, right? Right. So the other drug that they're using along with the hydroxychloroquine is another drug called azithromycin. So the two are often used together, paired, Mm -hmm. and that's an antibiotic. So that could help treat bacterial infections that often follow along after a viral pneumonia. So people get a bacterial infection Mm -hmm. on top of it, which makes everything just worse. Quick science lesson. While COVID-19 is wreaking absolute havoc on your immune system, opportunistic little bacteria see an opening to cause some damage of their own. That's why so many people who suffer severe cases of COVID also experience a secondary bacterial infection, hence the use of antibiotics. Azithromycin also has very interesting and not well understood anti-inflammatory effects. Mm -hmm. So um, again, modest anti-inflammatory effects, but it does that. So there might be some benefit to using azithromycin, but it's not a very strong antibiotic. So Mm -hmm. I guess if you're in the ICU on a vent, it wouldn't be an antibiotic I would reach for. A friend of mine asked what we need to see in order to really start thinking about life returning to normal, or at least some new kind of normal. You were talking about vaccine and treatment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right now we don't have a treatment. Mm -hmm. We don't have a vaccine. The only thing we can do to stop this epidemic is what we're all doing, which is sitting in our homes socially isolated, because that's the only thing we can do is try to prevent transmission. You really want to have other other tools in your toolbox. A treatment would help. It would, you know, prevent people from needing to go to the hospital or get 
into the ICU or, you know, it would save people's lives. And there are many drugs that they pulled off the shelf, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin being two of them, that might have some activity based on very preliminary studies done with SARS and MERS. Neither of those, <laughs> neither of those epidemics lasted long enough for sure, big right. trials to go on. So we don't have good data. For those of y'all who don't remember SARS and MERS... SARS, the first SARS was another bat virus that came into people somehow. The first SARS came through an intermediary host, the civet cat. We don't know what the intermediate host was for this one. Mm -hmm. Um, People think it's the pangolin, which is a odd little mammal. And then MERS is another coronavirus that is a camel virus. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like I said, we have human coronaviruses, mm-hmm. and some of those are kind of new to us also, maybe came into the human population like 200, 500 years ago, mm. based on the sort of the evolution of the RNA from other coronaviruses. Anyway, back to treatments. Remdesivir, it's made by Gilead Sciences, was used in MERS and also was used in Ebola. So it's it's not really great for Ebola, but it showed some efficacy. And then a good vaccine came along. So there is promise in treatment, but a lot of y'all wanted to know about a vaccine. Vaccines always take a long time yeah. to create, you know, years sometimes. Mm-hmm. Dr. Fauci has said 12 to 18 months. That's right. possible if everything goes correctly. If the vaccine doesn't show any toxicity, if it actually creates an immune response in people that prevents infection. And we've never had a vaccine that scored that kind of home run on the first attempt. Right. Um, There's trials going on right now, right? So that yeah. would, it would assume that something, that one of them worked, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, So that's really a good thing. We have many vaccine researchers out there testing Mm -hmm. many different kinds of vaccines. Mm -hmm. So one of them might get through to Mm -hmm. being useful. So it's good to have many choices. And the other thing that's maybe hopeful, even though 12 to 18 months seems like a long time to wait, is that vaccine technologies have advanced so much in the last 10 years that it's no longer sort of a random, <laughs> random choices how to build the vaccine. They actually right. understand to greater and lesser degrees the types of immune responses they can create mm. with different approaches. So hopefully we're smart enough that we can pick good, good choices to test. Right. So we'll, we'll see. There's another reason why vaccines are so crucial when it comes to deadly viruses. A vaccine would make it that we could basically eliminate this virus off the face of the earth, just like we did with smallpox and we almost did with polio. And it could potentially work well enough that if we can't eliminate it from the face of the earth, we could just incorporate it into the yearly flu shot or something. Okay. So every winter you get a COVID-19 shot in addition to your seasonal flu shot. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you know, we, we'll have to see what comes of the virus itself. And that was probably going to be one of your questions. What happens next? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> one person asked, which was interesting. I remember in the very beginning, it was people were saying, oh, in the summer, it's going to slow down, but then it might pick back up in the fall. Does that have any truth to it at all? Well, if this acts like any other respiratory illness, like influenza, which is a whole different kind of virus, mm-hmm. but coronaviruses, like the a lot of the common colds that you get each year, those are coronaviruses, all right? And you don't get colds often in the summer. They're usually That's in the true. winter, right? right? So if this acts like other human coronaviruses, then mm-hmm. it could, after this initial I guess, pandemic uh, Mm -hmm. wave that we're having right now, it could fall back and begin more seasonal circulation. Recently, Dr. Fauci said it might be possible to manufacture a few million coronavirus vaccines by January. Bill Gates says he sees eight to 10 promising vaccines currently in testing. But other doctors and economic experts say that manufacturing a vaccine of that magnitude in the next year is impossible. The alternative to a vaccine is herd immunity. Basically, we all get sick and we all become immune. The question is, is that really a viable option for a disease like COVID-19? We we don't know what's going to happen because this virus is new to the human race. No one has immunity. So it's possible that this won't go away until enough people are immune that Mm -hmm. it can't circulate anymore. Right. That's um, herd immunity, right? Right. But again, we don't we don't know what's no going to happen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Great fear right now is that okay, so we flattened the curve, yeah. right? And everybody um, wants to get back to work and get mm-hmm. back to a normal life, which is I think a good goal, but then since our only tool is social distancing and good hand washing, yeah. You know, how, <laughs> how do we, you know, create a semi-normal life again. This leads into another very popular question. When can we reasonably expect to resume semi-normalcy? That means, when can we go outside while still practicing social distancing? When can we go to restaurants at half capacity? When will we go back to work? It's a good question. I don't know a good answer to that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know that wasn't the answer you wanted to hear, But the fact is, a lot of really smart people are at a loss when it comes to the novel coronavirus. And that's okay. You know, we also have to have some humility when we're experts because (laughs) we we don't know things. And I think it's perfectly good if you're an expert to say, I don't know, or, or say, mm. I'm speculating now, but this is what I think might happen, right? Right. Uh, you know, because we, we can't tell the future entirely correctly. Advice is not always 100% accurate, but experts at least have some knowledge base to provide you with a rational approach. Speaking of advice, there's been some recent controversy over the CDC recommendation for the general public to wear cloth face coverings in public. Last week, Vice President Mike Pence visited the Minnesota Mayo Clinic, where visitors are asked to wear masks. The vice president is seen in footage, maskless, and although he claims he was unaware of the rule prior to visiting, Mayo Clinic says otherwise. The vice president later said that because he has not yet tested positive for COVID-19, he does not feel obliged to wear a face mask. This line of thinking has been prevalent in the Trump administration. 
In fact, President Trump himself said he would not be wearing face masks while meeting foreign leaders. I think uh, wearing a face mask as I greet presidents, prime ministers, dictators, kings, queens, I don't know, somehow I don't see it for myself. So I asked Dr. Klingman for her opinion on face coverings. No one knows if wearing masks actually work. Oh. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Es- especially, especially, you know, the non-medical masks. So the, you know, sure, just the right. cloth coverings, right? It might decrease the risk by 10, maybe 20%, which is good. But, sure, you know, something. but to be on a crowded subway, probably not good enough. So wear a face mask if you have to go out. If you have to go to the grocery store or walk through a fairly populated area. But unfortunately, we probably can't resume normal life wearing only cloth masks. I think as hopefully the hospitalization rates go down and the healthcare system can get a little bit less under stress and people feel like the hospitals can continue functioning, you know, so a month, maybe two more of this, I don't know. And then also... Hopefully we'll have some understanding of the role of masks mm-hmm. and then also what companies can put in place rapidly for workplaces. So I've been teleworking for the last, you know, four weeks. Right. So maybe my workplace should continue teleworking. So that decreases the risk for us. So we only have yeah. to go out and grocery shop and stuff, right? Other places of work could maybe put in some engineering things like barriers, you know, that people stand behind and, you know, mm, okay. you know, to prevent the, you know, the spread right. while people are close to each other. Masks at work when you're near other uh-huh. people uh-huh. might be, I mean, like real masks, like N95 masks mm, uh-huh. might be another approach. So maybe, again, as the pressure on the hospitals get better and we get supplies back in place for hospitals, we might also be able to buy masks again. And if we can each walk around with an N95 mask, that's fine for me. Don't get too excited, though. But until we have a good vaccine or treatments that are are really available and Mm non-toxic, things can't get back to normal. That's right. that's the whole issue. People, we have to do a lot of a lot of homework first. Even when we do say back to normal, what does that even mean? I mean, after this crisis, what does normal look like? This pandemic has brought to light some glaring issues with the way we travel, the way we work, the way we send our kids to school, the way we spend money. I mean, basically the way we exist in society. I know it's really hard to live like this, and rest assured, this will not last forever. But the phrase back to normal makes me uncomfortable. Because normal is part of what got us into this mess. A handful of states and countries are starting to reopen, or at least thinking seriously about what that would look like. Some states are already allowing specific businesses to reopen at lower capacities and with cleaning guidelines. And there's a fair amount of pressure on governors to reopen their state economies. That makes me really uncomfortable. I think there's a big worry that certain countries, including our own, are going to try to restart things too early, right? And it'll just result in another wave. Well, yeah, we might have to um, 
learn that lesson. I don't know. I don't really want to learn that lesson, but um, I mean, people are like going to the state capitol and wanting to go back to work. And I guess, you know, if I were governor, except for the fact that it harms people yeah, don't feel like that. I mean, if you want to get this disease, go right ahead. I don't know. I mean, sometimes, oops. You can't have a successful Zoom call without at least one weird technical blip. My computer just decided to go to sleep. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. I'm back we're again. Back. <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Endangering the lives of others. We'll see what Mr. Trump does and what the governors yeah. do. I have to pause here again because I really don't want to sound too dismissive of these protesters. Quarantine is hard, especially if you've lost your job. I understand the impulse to want to go back to work. And so does Dr. Klingman. People want their lives back. So it's as, sure. as things simmer down, it's going to be harder and harder to keep people on track. Governor Cuomo, I listened to a little bit of his daily talk today. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a good discussion of how difficult it will be to walk the tightrope. So if people want to go to YouTube, they can listen to his talk. He did a good job explaining it. I'll link the specific video she's talking about in the description. But I do highly recommend keeping up with Cuomo's briefings if you want to stay abreast of the latest COVID information. I'm also a New Yorker, though, so I might be a little biased. It would be easier if we had testing and case tracing like they do in Korea, because Mm -hmm. the only thing we have to see if things are out of control is really the hospitalization rates. I mean, once you start seeing hospitalization, that means you've had significant transmission again in the community. So kind of a late a late determinant of when to shut things down again. And that would be, those would be the more severe cases, right? So the mild ones are not counted. Right. You know, then we'd have to endure another two months before things would get back to normal or to some low enough level that people would feel comfortable trying again. So um, we'll see what our leaders do. Well, I mean, on a similar note via Twitter, someone asked, why is the death toll in the U.S. so high, relatively speaking? Let's pause for a sec to talk about Germany. Despite being quite literally in the center of the European hotbed for the coronavirus, the fatality rate for COVID-19 in Deutschland is only about 3%. Now, that's of course much higher than the fatality rate for the seasonal flu, which is around 0.1%. But compare 3% to the COVID-19 fatality rate in the United States, which is around 5%. These numbers are difficult to measure and highly disputed. In many countries, they're underreported. Unless there is widespread testing, mild cases go undetected. And some hospitals choose not to count deaths from comorbidities. In addition, here in the US, we've learned that many deaths in nursing homes haven't been counted at all. But regardless, the fact remains that the death rate in countries like Germany, South Korea, and Japan is far lower than other places. Countries in Germany's vicinity, like Italy and France, have had significantly higher mortality rates. Even the US, which likes to boast a far superior healthcare system, trails significantly. So what's up? Well, there's probably several reasons, but they're probably all social. Right. Um, We have, I think, more poverty in this country, you know, more poor housing, more people who are medically underserved, you know, and then the essential workers have been going to work and they don't have good 
protective equipment until recently, grocery store workers, the transit workers. So my postman has a mask now, but didn't initially. So it's changing. And I think the Metro, either they are going to or they have given all of the bus drivers masks and Mm -hmm. and, um, gloves. So people are trying to make it easier. But I think for the first few weeks, people weren't thinking of the essential workers Mm -hmm. as needing help dealing Mm -hmm. with this. And of course, these people are in low paid jobs, often minority individuals. Uh, Again, we have this health disparities thing that has been dogging us for a long time, now showing up with this pandemic. We really need to address this issue that's just because you're low paid or you don't have access to good health insurance through your employer that you can't get good medical care and good prevention services. Many have called COVID-19 the great equalizer. And it's true, the wealthy and privileged aren't immune to this virus. But there's a difference in the care that, say, Tom Hanks receives versus some working class dude from the Bronx. Working with HIV patients... Dr. Klingman has seen this inequality firsthand. With HIV, there were huge disparities. It is a minority disease in many respects in this country. Minority groups suffer more than affluent white individuals. And now we're learning this lesson again with COVID-19. I think Mm -hmm. we really need to work on these health and housing disparities that we have. Another problem is the American healthcare system. Studies show that expensive health care in the United States disproportionately disadvantages the poor. But there's another issue we'll need to address before the next pandemic. We don't have a health care system that can link easily with public health authorities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for them to share information rapidly. Both the Chinese and the Koreans used cell phone apps to help with the sort of quarantining of people. The Chinese approach was a little, I could say, Orwellian because some of their popular apps have sort of a backdoor where locator information is sent without the person's consent to the company or to the government or I don't know, to Mm -hmm. somewhere. But the government can access this and they can tell who's been near each other. So that's a little bit, like I said, Orwellian. I don't think we could ever do anything like that in this country. (laughs) Definitely Um, not. But the Koreans had an app. So like if you were placed in quarantine or if you had been diagnosed, people could download an app and the public health people would, they couldn't locate you specifically, but they could know that there was somebody nearby that had been diagnosed. So that gives people an idea that maybe they should be more careful, you know, about washing their hands and going out. And, you know, so people can then alter their behavior, right? Right. They start seeing lots of cases pop up around them. But healthcare reform isn't the only item on our pre-next pandemic to-do list. How viruses move is an area of virology that's really very interesting and getting a lot of press in the scientific literature because it helps us understand which viruses might jump next. Wow, that's wild. (laughs) So people were expecting a coronavirus outbreak, actually, and that's why MERS Uh. was sort of a wake-up call. Um, We weren't weren't listening, Um, except for a few researchers, but the rest of the world wasn't. On an individual level, it's so easy to feel completely powerless right now. We'll actually be talking about that next week. But we really are doing the best thing we can do, just sheltering in place. The doc is doing the same.
I walk around the neighborhood, right. you know, but I don't, I've not been like out and about. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, it's kind of wild, but that's probably, yeah. I mean, that's the, what we're supposed to do, right? Yeah. Our governors told us what to do. And mm-hmm. for the most part, people have responded and done what has been asked of them. I think it means that people are willing as long as they know that there's a good reason to, mm-hmm. to sacrifice for the greater good. One thing you can do from home is making sure that the information being passed around your circles is accurate. Misinformation can be deadly during a global pandemic. And in the era of fake news and distrust in government and the media, it's up to us to double and triple check the information we receive through others and via social media. What can we do to prevent the spread of misinformation on an individual level? Well, I think when you see somebody post something Mm -hmm. that you know isn't correct, you should challenge the post. You should Mm -hmm. say, well, no, this isn't right. This is not true, right? And actually, a Facebook friend of mine posted something the other day that was really off the wall. And I said, well, this isn't correct. And then she and her friends kept on commenting about how the media is not talking about this and people are mm-hmm. hiding these facts from us. And I said, uh, right. and, you know, and finally Facebook put that post down. So you can't even click oh, wow. on that link anymore. They oh, took it no down. Way. Okay. Yeah. So I was pleased to see that they caught up with this, but of course my friends, friends, they're still talking about this post as if it's real. So, mm. um, <laughs> <laughs> It is wildly difficult to challenge your friends' and loved ones' beliefs, especially now that simple things like the decision to wear a face mask in public have become politicized. But Dr. Klingman offered a great alternative way to look at things. It's really hard to sway somebody's belief, you know, in what they view as the correct world order. But just saying that this isn't true might help some people get a better grip on things. The other day, in one of my more depressive moments, my dad recalled a line from the end of Schindler's List that really helped. Whoever saves one life, saves the world entire. Remember that. What gives me hope in these times is that you can save someone, and you don't even have to get off your couch. What gives you hope? It's been really impressive to me how rapidly the scientific community has sort of gathered together and the sharing of information is incredible. The speed with which people are putting vaccines and drugs into clinical trials is amazing. Like for SARS and MERS, it took like 16 months or 18 months to get the first vaccine trial going. And certainly for this outbreak, we really don't need to wait 16, 18 months for the first study to happen. So that's been really quite heartening. And then the Chinese and the Koreans and the Italians are all publishing as fast as they can. I mean, once they're no longer exhausted taking care of patients, they're writing up what they saw and what they did and what worked clinically, what didn't work as far as managing these very sick people. That's amazing. So that's very helpful to the medical community and will save lives in the end. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation about COVID-19 and the spread of misinformation, follow us on Twitter at The GU Project and on Instagram at The Get Uncomfortable Project. 
it's spelled like you would expect. We'll be on Discord soon, too. Times are so tough. So if you can, you can support the Get Uncomfortable Project on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash getuncomfortable. Patrons will receive early access to episodes, a monthly newsletter with ways you can get involved, and the opportunity to participate in Q&As with my guests. And if you can't afford to donate, no worries. Maybe just subscribe and tell a friend about the pod. For more information on the COVID-19 crisis, including a bibliography for this episode and a master list of COVID-19 resources, visit thegetuncomfortableproject.org. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay uncomfortable. I'll talk to you next week. Have a good rest of your evening. Yeah, thanks. I enjoyed it. Amazing. Okay. Bye.